What's up, guys? Welcome back to the Listen to Me Speak podcast. We are on season two, episode nine. And I just want to thank everybody who supported, listened, and shared last week's podcast. I really, really appreciated it. So much has gone on since the last episode, so I kind of wanted to record and try my best to upload this episode a little bit earlier in the week because there's so much ground to cover and there's so much, you know, going on in the music world and the entertainment world in the following week. So I'm trying my best to stay on top of everything and also get these episodes out to you guys a lot quicker. So I don't want to waste any more time. Let's get right into things. So the entertainment world was pretty much set aflame once Oprah announced that she was doing an interview with both Meghan Markle and Prince Harry. Now, I was completely here for the both of them finally speaking about their truths and the hardships that they faced during their time with the royal family. So I had already planned on watching this interview for that alone but once it was announced and all of these bullshit stories about Meghan Markle being a bully to her staff once those stories started to swirl I realized like the royals the palace whatever you call it they're shook that means that there are some things that are gonna be said that's gonna paint them in a negative light So it was clear to me and many other people, I'm sure, that this was their way of trying to scare Meghan and Harry from speaking their truths in this interview and try to maybe shift the blame or shift the narrative to, oh, Meghan Markle's the the evil person in the story, not us before Meghan had the chance, before this interview even had the chance to air. So once I saw all of this was going on, I said, oh yeah, I'm definitely watching because some shit's about to go down. And of course I was right. I have to say before I get into any of my opinions or or any of the things that were discussed in the interview, I really have to admire Meghan's kindness and her grace. She could have, they both could have revealed every single thing that happened. Now, obviously, a big reason they probably didn't say names or reveal certain things was because their safety and the safety of both of their children now are still very much at risk. And if they had revealed certain things and said certain names, I'm pretty sure that would have put them in an extremely tough spot. So I do understand from that standpoint you know, why they chose to remain silent and not speak on certain matters, but they really could have disregarded all of that and said names and really told every single thing that went on during those years while they were royals because I believe as horrific and sad as the things that were revealed in that interview were, I just know that there are things 10 times worse than what we were told that went on there. And you can tell by the way Oprah would ask them certain questions and, and Megan would say, you know what, I don't feel comfortable revealing who said what because that could be very damaging to them. This interview in general seems to be pretty damaging. I feel like, I, I'm not going to say, like I know a lot of people and, I, and I'm sure it's an exaggeration a lot of people are like, oh, this is the da- this is the downfall of the monarchy, you know, Harry and Meghan are bringing them down. I don't think that things are going to change overnight, but I do think this interview formed a crack in that image and what the perception of what the royals are. I believe that some of it was already started with Princess Diana, but in this interview, we got more details than we've ever gotten, probably will ever get, you know, about how 
things work over there. And so I do believe that it's like a tiny crack that'll slowly spread over time. Like I said, there are a lot of things in this interview that broke my heart and angered me. One of them being that the Royals were unwilling to give Archie a title or security strictly because of his race. The fact that they were even having conversations about how dark Meghan and Harry's child may be when they're born just shows how deep-rootedly racist that institution is. Because fast forward, I know they didn't know this at the time, not that it even should matter, but fast forward to Archie being born, that baby is white. If you didn't know Meghan Markle was Archie's mother, you would not be able to tell that that child has a drop of black in him. But because they knew that Meghan Markle was the mother, obviously, and that she's black, all of a sudden they had a problem with giving Archie a title. All of a sudden they wanted to break protocols for what's the norm for these grandchildren. The norm is a grandchild is supposed to be honored with the title prince or princess. But all of a sudden, a black woman enters the royal family, has a child with Prince Harry, and now you you want to change the rules. Which, it already angered me, but seeing the look on Meghan's face as she's telling Oprah this was really heartbreaking because you could see just how sad she was. My mom also pointed out how sad her eyes were. And I think, obviously as black people, we're not new to racism it's something that we have dealt with since we were young something we're always unfortunately going to deal with but it's an even bigger slap in the face when it's done as blatantly as this was done to tell Megan and Harry that not only would their child not be afforded the title of prince or princess but that they wouldn't be afforded protection after the onslaught of racial bullying that Meghan Markle has faced or was facing at the time, still is facing, it was probably going to be even worse for this child. And you're not going to at least give them security? It's bad enough that there was nothing done to really protect Meghan Markle from this, especially during her pregnancy, but now the child is not at least going to get security. And There is no way to make sense of it. Like, when Megan was telling Oprah this, the look on Oprah's face was pretty much the look on my face, and I'm sure it was the look on a lot of people's faces who was watching this interview, because there is no excuse that they could give Megan or give to Harry, or even that Megan could relay to us in the audience that would cause us to go, you know what, that makes sense. It makes sense why Archie isn't going to have a prince title. It makes sense that he's not going to be protected. What excuse could you really give There is no excuse other than the fact that this child has a drop of black in him, even though it's just a drop. He's black, and we've never had a black person or a person of color in the royal family. It's not a look we want to have, and so let's just not give him a title. So technically, even though he's blood, he's, he's royal blood, he doesn't have the title, he'll have no way of getting near the throne. What other, what other excuse could you give? That, that would cause people to go, you know what? It's not racism. That excuse makes sense. There's no excuse you could give. It's so blatant. And that's why I feel like it's an even bigger slap in the face for Meghan and Harry because you're not even willing to accept your own blood because of their race. 
you were willing to throw Megan under the bus, villainize her, and now you're also going to tell her that her child doesn't deserve the same level of protection as his white cousins. So that really boiled my blood. And when I was putting together my notes for this podcast, I had all these ideas and these these clear-cut ways I was going to break down my feelings for this interview. But I'm behind this mic, and as I'm speaking these words and rethinking about these things from the interview, I just get so flustered with anger. Like, I'm pretty sure I'm going to listen back to this segment of the podcast and be like, you know, now that I'm, you know, thinking more clearly, I could have I probably said this better in a more concise fashion. But t- that was just mind-boggling to me. And I could tell it was mind-boggling to Oprah. Like, how do you continue with an interview? Because, you know, even as she was, you know, speaking about more things and other topics and they got away from kind of that topic, that was the one thing that stuck out in my mind. Like, you're so deep-rootedly racist that you were willing to change the rules for this one child. And it was it's so obvious, too, because Prince William and Kate, they have maybe... Th- They have three kids, four kids, I could be wrong. And those kids follow tradition. Prince, they were awarded with the prince and princess title. They took the baby picture after um, Kate gave birth. All of that. But all of a sudden, here comes a black woman entering the royal family, and now the rules have to change. Like, that just is mind-blowing to me. It, It shouldn't really be a shock, but when you have someone like Meghan sitting in front of a camera telling you these things, it's like, wow. And obviously, Oprah was fixated on the one question, which was, who was having these conversations? Which both Meghan and Harry were unwilling to reveal who was having these conversations. Apparently, these conversations were really happening with Harry, and Harry was going back and telling Meghan about it. I have some theories and ideas about who was having these conversations. I won't say behind this mic. Who, was ha- who I think was having these conversations, especially because in the UK, these royals don't play about, you know, people voicing their opinions or, or I guess, I, I won't say that I'm spreading lies, but kind of s- spreading information that may not be true. So I won't say to you who I personally believe was having these conversations with Harry. I'm pretty sure you can come to your own conclusions because most people have said the same names that I'm thinking. And I'm sure in some kind of way, some of these people who I'm thinking had these conversations are going to tell them themselves. Some of them already have. Oprah did reveal that after, I guess off the record, Harry did say that Queen Elizabeth and his grandfather were definitely not the ones having these conversations. I can believe that, especially because Harry seems to be the Queen's favorite, and Meghan, even in the interview, said that the Queen had welcomed her with open arms, loved her, was always very, very sweet to her. I'd be shocked if she was one of the ones having these conversations. I do think she's complicit in a lot of these things. But I don't think personally her or the grandfather were voicing concerns over how dark Archie may be. And that's just, I just can't stop thinking about that. Like, how vile are you? You're worrying about how dark their child's skin is going to be? Why does that matter? I never understood racism in the way that you just hate someone over the color of their skin. That to me is like, when you think, when you're a good person, or if you're at least a decent person and you can think with a clear mind, when you break down racism, it's the dumbest shit ever. 
you don't like someone because of the color of their skin. You think I'm less than you because my skin is darker than yours, which is the dumbest thing ever. And it's vile enough to already have that way of thinking, but to still have that way of thinking when it comes to your own family is just beyond me. And I think that's why a lot of people, myself included, are wary about dating interracially because it's not about the partner. Harry seems to be very respectful. He seems to be learning and educating himself. It's very obvious he loves Megan and his children. It's not really the partner. You could date someone outside of your race and they could be very socially aware and educated, but is their family the same? And then to marry into a family like that and have kids born into a family like that, that's extremely hard. And that's something that I'm wary of, you know, being an in an interracial relationship for that very reason. And it's even worse when it's on a scale like marrying into a royal family. That's 10 times worse. And I think Megan was naive in that sense that I don't think she really fully realized what she was getting herself into. And she kind of admits that in the interview. So now, unfortunately, Megan and Harry's kids are going to have to deal with this dynamic. They're going to have to deal with getting older and watching this interview and finding out all of these things about their family and especially Archie, how they felt about him and his skin color. I can only imagine how hard that's going to be for their children, even on them, because there's there has to be a lot of healing that has to happen between them before they can probably ever get to common ground. I don't know how realistic it is that they'll ever really get there. I think maybe the closest Harry is really going to get is maybe with his brother. I really can't see his him and his father patching things up completely. You know, especially with his father's own history with Princess Diana and that dynamic. I think that Unfortunately, I think that that situation as as where it is right now, where it seems to be between them right now is probably as good as it's going to get. But my heart does go out to them for that reason, because I can only imagine how difficult this is for them in a lot of different ways, but especially when you factor in their kids. I shouldn't have been shocked when they kind of revealed that they were essentially forced out and financially cut off, but when the Megxit, as they called it, which they always find a way to frame anything negative around Megan, it's very annoying. But when it was first announced that they would be stepping down from their royal duties and, and kind of not be active members of the royal family, it was always phrased in a way that it was their decision. But they kind of admitted that once they got to Canada, that they were essentially forced out. They had plans to still do some of the duties and the work that came with being royals without actually having the titles and and things like that. But it was pretty much decided for them that not only would they not be the prince and princess of duchess anymore, but they would no longer be doing any of the duties in the royal um, family. And not only that, but we're cutting you off financially. You will no longer have security which again, I feel is very, very cruel, not only because we were entering a pandemic, but also because Meghan and Harry now had an even bigger threat to their lives than they did when they were actually active members of the royal family. So to 
refuse them security when you know what they're going through was extremely cruel to me. And that's just something where if I was in Harry and Meghan's shoes, that's unforgivable to me. A lot of the things that they went through and were put through during that time are unforgivable. And I think that when it's your family doing this to you, it's even worse. So I really do think that they have very big hearts because I could see that they were they would be willing to sit down and work things out with the royals. I think if it was up to them, things would probably already be on the mend. But for me, I don't think I would have any interest in trying to work things out with them. I think that this institution has been going on for decades and decades. I don't think there's any change coming anytime soon. When things have been a certain way for years, it is very hard to break out of those traditions. It's a long process. Harry himself said that he was trapped and didn't realize it and that his brother and the rest of his family are trapped there. And it took Harry 36 years before he had that realization. Queen, I don't know how she feels. I can't say what I... I can't assume to know what she feels, but I can imagine even if she does feel for Harry and Meghan if she does agree with some of the things that they've been saying. She's the queen. It's it's too late for her. She is where she is. She's going to be a royal for the rest of her life. She will carry on with tradition for the rest of her life. But that's a long process. It's no different than trying to reform the police in in America. This has been a this system has gone on for years. It's it's going to be it's going to take a lot of work to, to dismantle and and rebuild a system like the justice system. And I don't think it's any different with the monarchy. While watching this interview when Megan began, you know, discussing her issues with mental health and having thoughts of suicide, like very clear thoughts and consistent thoughts of committing suicide, especially while pregnant, I'm not gonna lie, I sob. My heart broke for her because not only was she pregnant and suicidal, but they knew They knew and could tell she was going through a hard time and refused her help. It's already hard enough to admit that you're struggling mentally, but then to get over that feeling of, to get over feeling embarrassed about this, about these things enough to go and admit you need help and being refused help, it's gotta be extremely hard. And that's why it pissed me off when idiots like I think his name is Piers Morgan. I think that's how you pronounce his name. When idiots like him and several other people I've seen on social media say that she was lying for attention. What what person would lie about having suicidal thoughts, especially while they're pregnant? Megan's kids are going to have to see this when they get older. She knows that. So who would lie on a global scale because you're you're interviewing with Oprah? Who would lie about something like that? And... You know, I know Megan's an actress, but nobody's that good of an actress to fake the kind of sadness and heartbreak you could see in her eyes and on her face while she's telling this story about how hard of a time she was having, about how Prince Harry was afraid to even leave her alone for a moment. She was afraid to be by herself because she didn't know what she would do if she was alone. That really broke my heart, and I I am glad that she's alive today and that she didn't give them what they wanted because this is essentially what they wanted. They wanted to break her down. Their goal was probably to get her to be so fed up that she would be willing to divorce Prince Harry and move back to the States and they'd no longer have to deal with her. 
but I'm glad that she fought her way through, that Prince Harry stuck by her side, and she eventually got the help that she needed. And even though you could see the sadness still present in the both of them, and there's a lot of healing that needs to happen, you could also see that they're starting to get to a better place. She's pregnant. She's got that pregnancy glow. You know, when Oprah asked them what the sex of their baby was going to be, and, and he said it was a girl, he said it with so much excitement. So they're on the path to healing, and that's great to see. But she, they should have never had to gone through this. But I'm saying specifically Megan because she faced the brunt of this bullying and these attacks. She should have never had to go through something like this, all because of the color of her skin. And another thing that really made me angry was the colorism conversations happening on social media about the situation, about how, you know, yeah, I mean... I acknowledge that, you know, Megan had a, a hard time, but she's still white passing. And if it was a dark skinned woman, she would have she would have had it even worse. And you know what? There's some truth in that. Megan is white passing. She is. But she's still as much of a black woman as anybody else. I, I feel like the black community has this issue with gatekeeping blackness when it comes to biracial people. I feel like, I, I know there's this thing called the one drop rule where it's like, oh, if you're 25% black or anything less than, can you really claim being black? But Meghan Markle is 50% black. She's as black as she is white. She was raised by a black mother. I'm pretty sure she was closer to the black side of her family than she was with the white side of her family. Doesn't matter if she identifies as a black woman, as biracial, at the end of the day, she is also a black woman. And as light as she is, she still faced horrific racial bullying at the hands of the UK media. Now, if she was a dark-skinned woman, I'm sure it would have been even worse because her blackness would have been that much more apparent. But this was a woman who was white-passing and she still faced this. So obviously, the colorism conversation, though valid, it didn't matter to them over there. Because they knew she was black, whether she was half black, fully 100% black, or one drop, like Archie is, they would have treated her the same way. So I feel like what anchors me about these conversations is that it's allowing some black people to not empathize or feel her pain. And that's not right to me. Because like I said, at the end of the day, this is a black woman who was facing racism that was very real out there. So it's not fair to really say, well, she's not 100% black, so, you know, she has that, that privilege. In some ways, that, that's the case. But in this case, they didn't give a shit. Their racism is so deep-rooted that it bothered them that Prince Harry and Meghan's child, that is that does have a drop of black in them, that's not visible, it bothered them that this child even had a drop. So... It doesn't matter if she's half black to me because what they did to her over there was very wrong. It's wrong that they did it to Megan. It would have been wrong if they did it to a black woman who was 100% black. It would have been wrong if they did it to a dark-skinned black woman. It's wrong, period. So let's nip those conversations in the butt because it, it really doesn't fucking matter in this case. It doesn't erase the horrific racism that Megan was put through and by extension her child was put through. And that's exactly why it was a smart move for both Prince Harry and Meghan to remove themselves from that situation because if they had stayed there, 
it would have been even worse for them and for their child or future children. So yes, colorism is a very real problem that we deal with in the black community and it needs to be discussed. And there is privilege with with being white passing or having lighter brown skinned, 100%. But don't let the fact that Megan is white passing keep you from empathizing or being sensitive to what she went through over there. That's all I'm trying to say. I also read some supports that the palace is reportedly in quote, crisis mode. And that was very apparent to me after the queen actually wrote a statement or I, I don't know if she wrote it or if her people wrote it for her. I don't know how that stuff works, but it was a statement that came from the queen responding to Meghan and Harry's claims in the interview saying pretty much, I'm paraphrasing here, that the claims about racism were concerning to them, but that certain recollections may vary. And to me, that there was really no point of putting that statement out because it shows that they're not really taking any real accountability for any of the part they may have played in this matter. And I wasn't really expecting them to, of course not. I don't think they ever will. Any conversations that Meghan and Harry have with them will obviously be private and you know the royals royals have always been that way they've been they have a very particular image to keep up with and that's why a lot of these issues with Megan and her race are a problem for them but to me that statement really could have been kept in the vault because it really said nothing at all Prince Charles also seems to be doing some damage control as he shared photos of himself picture, pictured with black people today. He did this today as if that'll make people think he's less racist. Like, you know, him posting those pictures with black people is just like that racist white person who says, oh, well, I'm not racist. I have black friends as if that absolves them for the extremely racist thing they said the other day. It really doesn't do anything but make people probably think he's less guilty. All in all, though, I am happy that Meghan and Harry seem to be in a better place. I am happy they did this interview with Oprah, despite how I feel about Oprah, because I, like I said before, I think it was important that Meghan and Harry finally spoke their truth after the media has twisted evil narratives about them. It was important for them to take back their voice, and I think it was probably part of the healing process for them, so I wish them a very happy, healthy, and safe pregnancy. So moving on from Meghan Markle and Prince Harry, I wanted to talk about Fast 9, which was announced for like the third or fourth time that it's being delayed until June 25th. It was also announced that the Venom sequel is set to be released on the same day. I would not be surprised if these movies get delayed again. I honestly think that until these vaccines really start reaching big or a decent amount of people that it's more realistic for these movies to just set their releases for 2022. I just don't think it's realistic. I know New York and I just read something today about LA starting to reopen some of their theaters as well, but even New York is only going to be at 25% capacity, so it's not going to be a big amount. I think it's just more realistic for these companies, these production companies to just say, hey, you know what? I think we have a better shot at being open at full capacity next year. Let's just cut our losses and release the movies 
next year or if you really want them to come out this year so badly just do what a lot of movies have been doing lately which is releasing both on streaming services for a limited amount of time as well as actually in theaters to make up some kind of profit i know that these are huge blockbuster movies so they're trying to get as much bang for their buck but let's just keep it real folks just say, hey, we're going to release the movies in 2022 instead of this year because the constant delaying kind of looks a little crazy. But as much as I talk a lot of shit about the later Fast and Furious movies, I am going to stick it out because I've seen all the movies thus far. I think they're going all the way up until Fast 10 and then they'll stop. So I might as well keep watching until then. I don't know if I've seen any of the recent trailers. I actually have to give them a watch to see if they're any good. I will say that when Fast and Furious started getting away from the racing and made it more about like these glorified action movies with these crazy stunts, it kind of lost its edge to me personally. I think that for these last couple of movies that they do, they really should get back to basics. As far as the Venom movie, the first one was really good, so I have high hopes for the sequel. Moving on, I had to talk about the WandaVision finale, of course. It ended pretty much how we all expected it to, with spoiler alert, if you have not watched the finale, I've been slacking with my spoiler alerts, but if you have not watched the finale of WandaVision, I can't imagine you haven't yet, but if you haven't, because, you know, we have busy lives, I do want you to fast forward because I don't want to ruin the ending for you. But it pretty much ended the way we expected with Wanda having to let Vision, her kids, and her reality go. Um, it was sad to watch, but I will say that one of my favorite parts of this, this episode was Vision's monologue with Wanda towards the end where he pretty much says, you know, we've said goodbye before and we'll say hello again. I think that their goodbye to each other was really, really sweet. They gave Vision some really good monologues this season, I will say. With the last episode before the finale, he was comforting Wanda, who was grieving the death of her brother, and he pretty much was telling Wanda that grief is essentially love persevering. And it was a line that I saw stick with a lot of people online, especially with the times that we've been living in lately with a lot of people dealing and suffering from their own losses in their lives, losing family members, losing friends, loved ones. And a lot of people really appreciated that line. And it's crazy because obviously the show was written and filmed before the pandemic really struck. And it was it's an interesting way to kind of look at grief. And he really had a point, you know, that grief really is just an extension of love. You're grieving so hard because you love the person who's passed so much and so there's the person's not here anymore to receive that love and it just becomes grief so i really did love that line and i also loved you know the monologue between them when they had to say goodbye because it was just it kind of gave the audience and also wanda some hope that maybe they'd meet each other again because it's very clear that wanda and vision are soulmates i mean they sh they share the mind stone parts of the mind stone um, together. So the writers kind of left the door open for Vision to potentially return, especially not there now that there is the white Vision as we're calling him, which is Vision's actual body, but they just built him back together. He is still very much real and alive, so I'm pretty sure he'll make an appearance 
in one of the Marvel movies. I don't know if it'll be in Doctor Strange 2, but I'm pretty sure he will appear. I think it's the end of the relationship between them. I could be wrong. They could still keep that door open as well. But Vision is definitely not gone completely. In the finale, there's this fight scene between Wanda and Agatha, which I absolutely enjoyed. I also enjoyed Wanda beating her at her own game. I also love seeing Monica showcase some of her powers when she was protecting Wanda's kids from Hayward. He was like shooting at them and she steps in front of the bullets and she had no idea that she would even be able to protect them or that her powers would protect her from the bullets, but she still took that leap of faith and protected them anyway. And she essentially, I think the way Monica's powers work is that she, her power comes from whatever energy she's feeding off of. So she essentially feeds off of energy. She feed, she fed off of Wanda's shield, which is how she got her powers in the first place. She There was a scene in the episode before the finale where she was feeding off of Agatha's power. And each time she does this, her eye colors change and it reflects whatever energy source she's feeding off of. So when she was feeding off of Agatha's powers, her eyes flashed purple. When she was feeding off of, I forgot whose power she was feeding off of, but then her eyes turned blue. So it really just depends. So it was really cool to kind of see her use her, her powers as a hero, even if it was just for a tiny scene. What I will say, what really got to me with these episodes, what really has me hyped for this next phase was were the two post-credit end scenes. So there were two, which is kind of not the norm. Usually there's only one. So in the first end credit scene, it's kind of setting up Captain Marvel 2. So pretty much after the fight between Agatha and Wanda, the FBI shows up to arrest Hayward, interview some people, and Monica's kind of just chilling before one of the agents approaches Monica and tells her that, I guess one of the other agents wanted to interview her in the movie theater. She follows the agent into the theater and then you realize that the agent is a scroll. I think that's what they're called from Captain Marvel, which is essentially an alien. And she says to Monica, we've heard that you've grounded, AKA you've, you know, now you've discovered your powers and one of your mom's friends wants to meet up with you and Monica says, okay, where's this friend and where are we going? And she points upward, which indicates that they need to go to space, which is the perfect setup for Captain Marvel 2. I think it's been confirmed that Tiana Paris, I think that's her name, is either Paris or Parrish. Um, it's been confirmed that she will be in the second Captain Marvel movie, you know, playing Monica. So I loved the first Captain Marvel I hope I said Captain Marvel, not America. I love the first Captain Marvel movie and I've been waiting for the sequel probably ever since I came out of the theater after watching the first one because it was so well done. Um, so I'm really even more excited because I love Tiana in WandaVision. I think she played Monica very well. I think the casting for adult Monica was done very well. She looks just like, you know, the girl who played her, the child actress that played her in the first movie. And of course, I've been waiting for Monica to finally gain her power. She has them. And I can't wait to see what that dynamic is going to be like with Captain Marvel now that Monica's an adult and WandaVision has kind of led on to the fact that they had some kind of falling out. There's some kind of issue between them. And in the comics, I believe Monica takes up the Captain Marvel mantle and 
you know, Carol was kind of training her and teaching her how to use her powers. So I hope we see a lot of that in the second Captain Marvel movie. It's just a shame that Maria is gone now, so we won't see um, Lashana Lynch reprise her role as Maria. But I can't wait to see where they take Captain Marvel too. but obviously it'll most likely pick up around the time that after WandaVision. And WandaVision sets up a lot of stuff. I think that out of all of the Marvel series that they're doing on Disney+, Plus, WandaVision is the most essential to watch because, I mean, if you don't have Disney+, Plus and you haven't seen the show, you won't be completely lost, but it will help you fill in those minor details if you do watch WandaVision. I think you probably, if you intend on watching Doctor Strange 2, you probably really should be watching WandaVision just so you can kind of see where Wanda fits into that world when she gets to Doctor Strange 2. But speaking of Doctor Strange 2, that's what the second um, end credit scene is about. It kind of sets up Doctor Strange 2 with Wanda being isolated and you see Wanda out in front of her cabin, which she now lives, and then as she goes inside, you see that her alter ego, the Scarlet Witch, is reading, I forgot, I think it's the Book of the Damned, and kind of, I guess, soaking in that information, retaining power, whatever you want to call it, and so now it sparks the question, will Scarlet Witch become Wanda's evil counterpart? Because she's the strongest sorcerer, according to Agatha, she absorbed Agatha's power and Agatha has been absorbing so many witches power I know she's absorbed a lot of dark magic probably and so now Wanda has a has a lot of dark magic so Scarlet Witch could potentially be a villain especially because I think when Wanda was originally introduced she was kind of a villain I haven't watched um Age of Ultron where she's was introduced as a character I haven't watched that movie in a long time and I've only seen the movie once but I do think she was the villain in that movie so it's not like Elizabeth Olsen is new to kind of playing a more evil version of Wanda if you look at WandaVision through a certain lens Wanda was kind of the villain in that show for a little bit so it'll be interesting to see where they go with Scarlet Witch. I think because she's teaming up, teaming up with Doctor Strange, who is not a villain, there's a potential, there's a possibility, not a potential, there's a possibility that um, Scarlet Witch won't be any kind of villain. And I think part of the reason she will team up with Doctor Strange is to learn her powers. He's, uh, he's a sorcerer himself. He can teach her a lot of things. She had a lot of dormant power that she didn't know she possessed, let alone knows how to use. So I think that that's probably going to be her introduction into Doctor Strange with him and her working together and him kind of being her mentor. The first Doctor Strange movie was decent. It wasn't one of the better movies in the Marvel um, franchise for that phase at least, but I think with WandaVision how good WandaVision it was, and now that it's setting up Doctor Strange 2, I think it has a potential to be a better movie, and I think Doctor Strange 2 will definitely be more of an enjoyable movie if you watched WandaVision. All in all, the next phase of Marvel looks like it's going to be good, and I can't wait to watch it. Moving on from TV, I wanted to talk about music, of course, my favorite subject. The weekend song Blinding Lights becomes the first song in billboard history to spend a whole year in the top 10 wow that's such an incredible feat i think it's incredible it's got to be an incredible feeling as an artist when you are the first person to achieve something like this that's incredible 
the fact that The Weeknd has a song, he is the only artist to have a song to stay one whole year in the top 10. That's a hard thing to do. You're lucky if you spend a couple of weeks, at least one week in the top 10 on Billboard because, you know, that stuff is very fickle. There are so many new songs that come and go. So that's when you know that even beyond Billboard, beyond the charts, that a song like Blinding Lights has a lot of impact. It's just people really enjoy the song because, you know, there's no amount of messing with numbers that you can do for a song to stay like that on, on Billboard consistently for a whole year, that just shows that that shows the quality of the music is pretty much what I'm trying to say. So that's incredible. He, um, I think his certifications were also updated. And I gotta say, After Hours is definitely, I think we can say this, is definitely The Weeknd's magnum opus for sure. I don't know if he'll ever top that album, and I don't think he needs to. Um, I think he's capable of putting out other great albums after after hours but after hours i think will remain his greatest work i think when we talk about after hours in 20 years we'll still say the same thing moving on from the weekend the grammys finally announced their performers last week meg cardi lil baby doja cat and post malone are among some of the performers this list is a mixed bag to me honestly some of these performances i'll be looking forward to seeing Others I don't really care much about, but I will watch the Grammys. I'll sit through the whole thing. Um, I the past couple of years I've usually I've usually watched like half of the show. It was a little bit more difficult in college because there weren't a whole lot of TVs you could have to yourself in the lounge room. So I was lucky if I even had or I even stumbled across a TV that was not being used. So I would usually watch half the show, but I usually watch most of the performances I came for. But now that I'm doing my own podcast, of course, I have to watch the whole entire show and let you guys know what I think. So I can come prepared for the episode that I'm going to be doing after the Grammys air. I do hope that Megan Thee Stallion brings Beyonce out to perform Savage. It would make sense because Beyonce is nominated for a few Grammys herself. So she may already be there. So I think that's, that would be a great idea. I also hope Cardi brings Meg out to perform WAP. She'll most likely perform Up as well because that's the new single. But the, her song with Megan is such a, a huge hit. And since Megan is already going to be a performer herself, it makes sense for them to do that record together. Doja could perform any song at this point because nearly all of the songs off of Hot Pink are becoming hits, and you can thank TikTok for that. At this point, by the end of this year, I'm pretty sure all of the songs off of Hot Pink are are going to have music videos. It'll essentially have become a visual album. And I was just having this thought to myself the other day where, you know, you think about Nicki Minaj's Pink Friday album and how... No female rapper before or after her really achieved what Nicki Minaj has done with that album. I think Pink Friday is definitely the blueprint for all of the female rappers coming out after Nicki because Pink Friday was able to have the perfect mixture of rap and pop and mainstream success that not a lot of female rappers have been able to achieve on a full album like that in like a, a balanced way. I, you know, Good News missed the mark with that. Cardi B, though she's had a lot of success from Invasion of Privacy and she's become a mainstream act, when you listen to that album as a whole, she didn't have that healthy balance. I haven't listened to Hot Pink yet. I do, despite how I feel about Doja, I think I do want to listen to that album to kind of 
form my own thoughts about it, but what I've been hearing and reading from other people, I think that Doja is the only female rapper after Nicki Minaj to have an album, a debut album. Is I don't know if Hot Pink is a debut, but her, it's a mainstream debut. I think she's the only one with Hot Pink to come close to Nicki Minaj with Pink Friday and achieving that well-balanced mainstream uh, but still staying true to yourself album. And Doja Cat has definitely blown up to being a main pop star. So I got to give her credit where it's due, despite how I feel about her, you know, in my own personal opinion. I'm not going to say sit here and say that Hot Pink comes close to Pink Friday in um, quality or just how good the music is, but I think in the sense of she had a really well-balanced album, I think that Doja was maybe the closest and may be the closest for a while to come to Pink, to, to level up with Pink Friday, if that makes sense. Usually most of the performers at the Grammys end up being the winners, so I guess this performance, the, the, this list of performers is a good indicator of who will be taking home some of the awards. Um, last week, I did a, I was a guest, I promoted it last on last week's episode, but I was a guest on a friend's podcast that was Grammy-centered, where we talked about some of our predictions, but I'm going to quickly go over some of mine again from my podcast, and I'm going to address certain uh, nominees that we didn't get to cover on that episode. So I'm going to start off by saying that I see Savage Remix taking home the record of the year. If Savage doesn't take it, I'll be surprised. But I think a decent runner-up is Say So. I think Taylor Swift is obviously winning Album of the Year with Folklore. She's most likely going to win all of the um, categories that she's in. I'll be surprised if she loses one. You know, they love Taylor Swift at the Grammys. They love her at any award show, to be honest. I really want Janae to take this one home, but it's most likely going to Taylor Swift. It is what it is. Song of the Year will probably go to Dua Lipa for Don't Start Now. That was a huge song. I can't see Dua walking away without a single Grammy, but then again, they snubbed The weekend, so anything is possible. Megan or Doja will probably win Best New Artist. I'm even predicting that there may be a tie for this one because it really can go either way. As big as as big of a year as Megan had last year, Doja had just as big of a year as Megan, so it can go either way. But I'm going to be bold and predict that this is going to end in a tie. Doja will probably win for Best Pop Performance with Say So, which was another big record i mean seriously it was all over tiktok tiktok is the reason it was such a hit you couldn't go anywhere without hearing this record without seeing the dance or the challenge or whatever you want to call it so dojo is definitely going to walk away with some grammys for say so beyonce or janae could win for best r&b performance they're the most known in the category so grammys are a popularity in mainstream contest contest so janae and beyonce are the most known in that um, category, so it's probably going to go to one of them. Chloe and Hallie will probably win for Best Traditional R&B Performance. They'll also probably win for Best Progressive R&B Album. Honestly, I can't see Chloe and Hallie walking away this year without a Grammy. They were nominated um, for a Grammy with their last album. They didn't win, but I think Chloe and Hallie have become even bigger and more known since then, and they are Beyonce's artists, so I really will be surprised if they don't snag a Grammy, and I think they deserve 
um to win one ungodly hour was not only a good album but i think it really does fit the description of a progressive r&b album nobody sounds like chloe and ally they chloe and Halle, they've you know formed their own lane their own sound so i definitely think they're deserving of this award the best r&b album will most likely go to john legend not only was the album good but also john legend is probably the most distinguished um artist in the category so I, I can't see him not winning it. Giveon is also nominated. He deserves as well because his Take Time EP was really, really fucking good. So good. It's just now starting to get the recognition that it deserves. Even I was late on that EP. I think I listened to it this past summer. It had been out since March. Um, and I finally got into it in the early summer. But, you know, Heartbreak Anniversary is now charting. His song, Like I Want You, is finally charting, so he's now starting to get recognition, and a Grammy nomination is only going to make him even bigger, and if he really is on Justin Bieber's, you know, new album that's supposed to drop this month, you know, that's going to take him even higher, so he's definitely deserving, but I can't see him winning, unfortunately. The best melodic rap performance will probably go to Baby and Roddy for their song Rockstar, which was another big song, of course, pushed by TikTok. And the best rap album will either go to Nas or Freddie Gibbs and The Alchemist. I didn't listen to Alfredo, but I did listen to Nas's album, so if I had to pick, I personally would want Nas to win. King's Disease was a pretty good album. Um, but I have heard great things about Freddie Gibbs and The Alchemist, which is why I think it could go either way. Like I said before, I'll be doing a Grammys Aftermath episode where I'll give you guys my opinions and reactions to the winners and snubs that happen during the award show, so stay tuned for that. I'm going to try to get that episode up to you guys maybe a day or two after the Grammys air. Moving on to last week's new music releases, Justin Bieber dropped a new song last week called Hold On along with his album pre-order. I'm glad he finally put out an upbeat single for once. Anyone wasn't really slow, but it was still too mid-tempo. Hold On so far is his most upbeat track out of all the singles he's released so far. The song is a solid pop record, but it just isn't super special. And it bothers me that I can't really put my finger on what's missing, but something about it feels empty. Not the meaning of the song, but the song itself. Maybe bland is the word I'm looking for. It just sounds like a basic pop record. It'll do well on pop radio like the other singles are, but it's definitely missing something. This is his fourth single, so it's not like it has to be show-stopping, but I don't know. I feel like Holy and Lonely really kind of did the job of taking Justin Bieber away from the harsh criticism he received or the mixed reviews he received on Changes. Holy, Lonely, and, and really all the songs he's put out since for this era was a hard left from the music he was doing on Changes, but obviously the first singles that he put out were the ones that really needed to to um, grab the audience's attention and change their mind because they, are, they were the first songs released since Changes, and Holy and Lonely, especially Lonely. Lonely was a really beautiful record. It had a uh, strong message. Justin sounded really good on it. It sounded like nothing he's created before. So I guess, you know, with Hold On being his fourth single, it didn't really need to, to do that, but it's definitely missing something. Justin sounds great on this track, though, and I'm glad that he's been utilizing his lower range a lot more this era because it actually sounds really good and 
probably puts less strain on his vocals. He sounds really, really healthy. This song still has a good amount of falsettos, though. You can definitely hear John Bellion's influence blatantly, not only because you can hear his background vocals in the song, but even in the way Justin sings certain words, you can tell that John Bellion had a hand in probably the vocal production and, you know, definitely the writing. I have a feeling that this album is going to be a collection of different sounds and genres rather than a cohesive album, which I wouldn't be super bothered by to be honest. I think Justin should be experimenting and finding a new song that suits him because a lot of my criticism for the Justin Bieber of the 2020 so far is that he hasn't been able to really lock down a sound for him right now. Him taking that five-year break between purpose and changes kind of harmed him in the sense that he wasn't really paying attention to what was going on sonically in the music industry. You know, the music he was making on purpose definitely died out by the time we got to 2020. So I feel like changes, he wasn't really trying to look for something new. He wasn't really putting his best foot forward and putting a lot of effort into making good music. It was kind of him just getting his feet wet again after being gone for so long. But with Justice, I do think It's important that he finds a sound that works for him that is modern and current. And I think that what Dua Lipa is doing as far as pop goes, what Doja Cat is doing as far as pop goes doesn't really work for Justin Bieber. So it's important that he works with writers and producers that can kind of help him find a new sound. And Justice could be that little in-between period where he's kind of finding a new sound for himself. I don't think the album will be bad so far, but I think if you're comparing it to what to the music that he's done on purpose and, and prior to, you'll be disappointed in that way. But I just think it's as simple as Justin needing to find himself again, and I think the music will eventually be as good as it was back then, or I hope so. Silk Sonic released two new tracks as well. The intro of their upcoming album was the first song they released, which sets up the story and sonic theme of the album, which is what a good intro is supposed to do, so great job. And also, they released the lead single, Leave the Door Open. Leave the Door Open sounded just how I expected a joint song between Bruno Mars and Anderson Pack to sound like, and I'm so glad they dis- didn't disappoint with that because sometimes things or certain artists look good on paper, but... They don't end up executing the sound as well, but it sounded just how I expected. It's silky smooth with heart-melting falsettos, backed with live production, so it has all the stuff that I love. Of course, DeMille had a hand in the production on this song, and he probably executive produced the whole album, much like he did with Victoria Monet and Lucky Day. He's been a part of so many great records, and is a part of the reason why R&B sounds as good as it does right now, from Lucky Day to Victoria Monet to now Silk Sonic, DeMille has his hand on what R&B is supposed to sound like, and I definitely definitely think we should be giving him his flowers. I think ever since I've started my podcast, I've definitely been giving him his flowers, but I think more people need to as well, because as much as we praise Victoria Monet and we praise Lucky Day's Painted album, we also really have to praise DeMille for his production, because that's what made the album. Leave the Door Open has 70s and 80s influences throughout the production and the vocal production, all while remaining fresh and modern, and that's the key, and that's something that a lot of artists have a lot of trouble doing with these days, but Bruno, Anderson, and DeMille found a way to make it work. 
Bruno Anderson and DeMille are all musician, musicians, which is why the music sounds so live and authentic and not computerized, which again, I love live production. I love the back and forth between Bruno and Anderson. They just feed off of each other's energy very well. And I can't wait for the rest of this album because I know it's going to be great. I absolutely love this track. I haven't watched their full interview with Zane Lowe yet, but I have read some articles recapping some of the things that were said. And apparently they've been working on the Silk Sonic album for three years. I think after Cardi B bowed out of being Bruno Mars' opening act, he went with Anderson Pack. And one night they just started having a jam session and they had this idea to put together these cool melodies and that formed into them trying to create an album. And now we're finally going to get it and I can't wait. There's not much we know about the project in terms of when it's going to come out or anything like that. But I have a feeling that they'll probably drop the album in early April. They're probably really going to take their time rolling this album out because this is a new group. And I'm sure they were not sure how they were going to be received. But I'm pretty sure next week that Leave the Door Open is at least going to crack the top 20 on Billboard. My favorite lines are, quote, I look too good to be alone, my house clean, my pool warm, just shaved, smooth like a newborn. Simply because I think that Bruno and Anderson sound really fucking great and they harmonize really well together and I think that this line is a is a flex because you should think that you're too you look too good to be alone duh but that's really all I have to say about leave the door open I think it's great if you haven't heard it yet definitely check it out it's worth the listen I promise moving on from Silk Sonic the music world myself included was buzzing last week when Drake announced his scary hours two three pack or EP This EP, I'm going to be honest, was mid to me. It sounded like a bunch of throwaway records that were intended to keep fans at bay until Certified Lover Boy was ready to go. I know Drake all too well as a fan at this point and assumed that the intention of this drop was to see which of these songs would take off and lead the album, much like God's Plan did for Scorpion, and I was right. And like I said last week, Drake knew what he was doing with this and it worked because What's Next is set to be number one on the Hot 100 this week, I I think, or next week. And if if it's a number one that sticks, it'll definitely make its way onto Certified Loverboy, much like God's Plan did with Scorpion. Listening to What's Next, it's very clear it's Drake's typical radio record, it's a typical pre album single, both in production and in the writing. At this point in his career, Drake knows what catchy things to say. He'll know the lines that'll take off and the lines that people will run with. You know, for example, in What's Next, he has lines like, quote, I love you to death, but I told you the truth. I can't just be with you and only you. He has a line that goes, quote, I'm making a change today. The liquor been taking the pain away. And finally, the most quoted um, line in the song is quote well summer all I did was rest okay in New Year's all I did was stretch okay and Valentine's Day I had sex okay he just knows that there are certain lines that people are going to run with because they find it relatable because they're fun to say because they're they make good captions for Instagram he knows at this point and that's something a lot of people say about Drake he writes lines for Instagram captions so like I said at this point in his career he's mastered the art of what I like to call quotables The song has grown on me since I heard the leak, but it still could have been kept, in my opinion, and it isn't album-worthy. But if it's one thing Drake knows how to do, it's make a hit, and I've been a fan of Drake since damn near the beginning, and I kind of, 
I'm not going to say I know his every move, but when you've been a fan of an artist for a long time, you start to pick up on how they operate. And when I listened to What's Next, before I even know it, knew it had a music video, I said, this is going to be the song that he pushes as the single from the EP. Because like I said, it has all of the characteristics of a typical Drake single. And sure enough, they've been playing it like crazy on the radio. So he knows what he's doing. My favorite line in this is, quote, I'm on the hot one hundo, numero uno, this one ain't come with a bundle. I'm in the wind, a million in chocolate chips, and that's just how my cookies crumble. He essentially predicted his own success before it happened. I think that's why I think this line is such a flex, because he said, hey, um, I'm on the hot 100, and I don't even need a bundle to pull this shit off, because you can say a lot of things about Drake. What he's never utilized in his career is the bundles. Even when they became a thing, Drake always got his... um, sales either from pure sales or from streams he never abused the bundled rule that billboard had for a while so the fact that it's kind of hard these days when you have a number one single you have a number one album without bundles but drake has been able to achieve both of those things time and time again and if the predictions are right and what's next does hit number one he's done it again and he's predicted it there's nothing really much to say about the song wants and needs it's the only song i don't really return too much It's essentially a little baby record to me because he had the better verse on the track. And if you listen to the song in terms of production, it really does sound like a baby record. I wouldn't be surprised if it's a song that maybe was intended for baby at first and Drake just slapped it onto scary hours too. It could also explain why I don't really vibe with the record. I'm not a fan of little baby like that. So there's no surprise that I don't really connect with the song. So it's not really a surprise that Little Baby had the better verse on the track because this is pretty much his bag. I saw a lot of people hyping up the Yeezy line in the record, which to me didn't deserve the hype that it got. But of course, he's mentioning Kanye. They have their issues. That line was going to go for a lot of people. The line was okay. Drake has said better lines about Kanye before. I'm honestly sick of the back and forth between Drake and, and Kanye. So that line pretty much, I rolled my eyes when I heard that line. When I was driving in the car to work, I was letting the EP play. And when I heard the line, I just had to roll my eyes. Because I'm like, can you, can both of you guys just let this thing rest? Either make up or just stop talking about each other. So to me, Wants and Needs was definitely a throwaway record. And it was quite obvious that it was. The only worthy song off of this three-pack and my personal favorite is Lemon Pepper Freestyle because one, Drake is rapping rapping, and two, he's in his retrospective bag, and this is where Drake raps at his best, when he's giving the audience something personal and something to hold on to. He tends to do this on his timestamp records and on the on an odd record here and there the last time he did this um in a way that stuck out to me was his song you and the six from if you're reading this it's too late a project i've i've said before that i don't really rock with like that but that song is one of my favorites for that very reason that's often why i feel like the timestamp records are fan favorites because drake is actually rapping and giving you bars and he's giving you honesty and that's i know that's why this timestamp records are usually my favorites but this time he brought that element onto Lemon Pepper Freestyle and that's why I really like it. I do think the sample was a good choice for this record, but it was chopped and put together in a very lazy fashion. They could have Boy Wanda could have done better with this. It's definitely a song to ride to at night and just if you're laying down in your bed and you just want you don't want to listen to a record that gets you hyped, you just want to listen to a record that makes you think. This is definitely the record for that. 
My favorite lines in this song is, quote, Teacher-parent meetings, wives get googly-eyed, regardless of what they husbands do to provide, asking if I know Beyonce and Nicki Minaj. And yes, I'm not ashamed to say that I like those lines strictly because he mentions Beyonce and Nicki. Duh, they're two of my favorite artists, especially Nicki because they kind of had an unspoken falling out in 2018 and, you know, Nicki's mentioned Drake in a song recently and now he's mentioned her in a song. So I think they're probably on better terms and hopefully we get a new song from them this year, whether it's on his album or hers. I don't care. I just want a new Nicki and Drake song. My other favorite line on the song is, quote, Air Canada Center, nigga, when I die, y'all gonna have to fly in and do your fake cry. First couple rows, you gonna see the real guys. Because I think we've all had that conversation with friends, like, you know, when I die, don't, don't let, make sure no fake people, no fake friends are at my funeral. Make sure the people that truly loved and supported me are there, you know, because sometimes when, when people die, there's always those couple of people that, you know, cry and, and act like they knew the person or they were friends with the person when they weren't or they weren't on good terms with the person when they died and or they just want attention. So I think this line is just relatable to a lot of people for how real it is. To wrap up my thoughts about Scary Hours 2, to me, it was, like I said, a th- bunch of throwaway records meant to keep fans happy so that we weren't constantly bugging him or the OVO team for Certified Lover Boy. I think it achieved what Drake set set it out to achieve, which is he found a song that he could make go number one for a couple of weeks. He found his new lead single because Laugh Now, Cry Later is old at this point. I don't think that counts as the, the lead single anymore. I'm sure it'll make the album, but I think What's Next is going to end up uh, leading Certified Lover Boy. But we will see. I anticipate, I don't even know why I keep doing this because nobody knows at this point because Drake keeps delaying this album, but if we listen to what Academic says, which I feel like at this point he's more of a reliable source, the latest Drake will come out will probably be late April, but we'll see. Nick Jonas was also among the many people that released new music last week. He released the second single from his upcoming album that drops this Friday called This Is Heaven, and this should have been the lead single instead of Spaceman. It's a pop song done right. It's upbeat, it's got good vocals, and it has feel-good lyrics, everything a pop record should have. It also makes you want to dance. I love the fact that it's not super sugary either, even though it's kind of like a love letter to his wife. It's it's not like bubblegum pop. I love the horns that appear before the final chorus hits because it's just a great bonus to an already good song. And paired with the background vocals, it just gives the song a live feel. It just elevates it to another level. Nick Jonas pulls off pop really well, and I just know that this is going to be a great album from him. Moving on from Nick Jonas, Maroon 5 and Megan Thee Stallion released a new collaboration called Beautiful Mistakes. I know I kind of like made fun of the idea of this song on my last episode, but the song didn't end up as bad as I thought it would be. It's still a very weird pairing that doesn't make any sense to me though. Black Bear produced this track and you can hear his fingerprints all over the record. From the stacked trap drums to Adam Levine's vocal inflections, it's just very apparent. The song itself isn't bad at all. It's a typical pop radio friendly single from Maroon 5. It's something they're known for. But Meg's verse is subpar. You can tell the verse was rushed because there's barely any effort put into it on her part. The song would have been better without Megan's verse, and this is coming from someone who absolutely loves Megan the Stallion. It could have just remained a Maroon 5 song without any features. 
Megan singing in the little break in the song was cute, though. I know some people hate when she when she sings or she's on some her melodic shit, but I think it was cute. It was a cute little addition on this song. So I had to talk about Matthew Knowles opening up his big mouth and making nasty and unnecessary comments about Chloe Bailey. It seems like ever since Chloe and Hallie decided to make separate accounts, people have just been going after Chloe Bailey left and right. And recently it was Matthew Knowles in a, an interview that he gave. He said that the comment that the comparison between Beyonce and Chloe were ridiculous and the people making these comparisons are stupid or sound like idiots, something like that. And my thing is, these comments were so unwarranted. Like, you don't have to agree with people's opinions. You can think that they're kind of wild, but you don't have to. You don't have to phrase it in such a like a rude way, especially when, like I said, it was unprompted. It was so random. I didn't watch the interview. I don't know if the interviewer asked him what he thought about the comparisons. I don't know, but I felt like there was a classier way to kind of say, it. you know, Beyonce's a legend. Chloe is just starting out. We we really barely can't make these comparisons yet he could have kept it at that but he chose to be very rude and I feel like it's just an indicator of why he's in the space where he's in because he just recently retired from I guess being a manager in the music industry to me it was kind of like he was forced into retirement because obviously he's not Beyonce fired him from being her manager I don't think he's really close with Beyonce or Solange probably because he does stupid shit like this and I don't know why he thought it would be a good idea to not only just make rude comments about a young woman who did nothing to offend him but to make comments about an artist signed to his daughter it it was just a dick move simple as that that's all I have to say about that but you know when you're miserable like that you try to spread your misery to everyone that'll listen and I just hope that Chloe Bailey is no longer paying any mind to anybody who has negative shit to say about her because she's beautiful she's talented and Chloe and Hallie are only going to get bigger and bigger and they really shouldn't pay attention to any of this shit moving on Lil Nas X will finally finally after like a year of teasing this damn song he's gonna release it it's called Montero or call me by your name he has a TikTok and nearly in every recent TikTok he's made he's been teasing the song in the background so it's about damn time that he's putting the song out from the snippets that he keeps um releasing it sounds a lot better than the last few songs that he's released so I can't wait for this one It was announced that Miley Cyrus is leaving RCA and is signing with Columbia Records, which I think is a big move. Columbia Records is a great record label, and RCA has been known to screw their artists over time and time again, from Tinashe to Zayn. I kind of think they're doing it to Normani now. So I am glad that Miley Cyrus is getting out of that contract i think it's kind of sad that she put out one of the better albums in her career in a long time on that label and it probably won't get promoted as much as it would have now that she's leaving but i kind of think this pop punk sound that miley cyrus you know started creating well not creating because she didn't create the genre but the the genre that she started to kind of be in now and make i don't think that that's going anywhere anytime soon especially because she pulled it off so well on plastic heart so Columbia Records will probably get another pop punk album from Miley Cyrus. I do also have to talk about Zayn's random Grammy rant. He tweeted essentially fuck the Grammys, which is no different than what a lot of artists have been saying lately, but to me it came out of nowhere because his album was nowhere near making the deadline for the 2020 deadline. So to me it came off as attention seeking. He just, I mean, 
his label hasn't really been promoting his album. Maybe he saw it as a way to, you know, get his name in the blogs to generate some more promotion for his album. I don't know. But I feel like at this point, artists are just complaining about the Grammys because their feelings are are hurt or they want attention because if they truly feel this way about the Grammys, they would stop turning in their music for Grammy consideration. If you want the Grammys to stop having so much stock and meaning and power in music, then you would all stop turning in your albums for Grammy consideration. But you still are, so that shows me that you're still holding the Grammys to a high regard, which I get. But if you are going to keep turning in your albums for nominations for the Grammys, then complaining about them every year, it's just noise at this point because you're doing a whole lot of talking but you're not really you're not really producing any actions that's gonna stop the grammys from wielding the power in the way that they do so zane's rant just came out of nowhere um rca please promote this man's album it's not like it was a bad album but give him something to do because this whole angry fuck the grammys tweet it it doesn't read well i do want to say uh congratulations before i forget to Cardi B because her single Bodak Yellow went diamond. She's officially the first female rapper to have a diamond selling single. And I remember when Bodak Yellow first came out when it was starting to catch success. And I remember when Cardi was just a social media comedian when she was on Love and Hip Hop and she's come so far. So congratulations to Cardi B. Hurry up and drop this fucking album, girl. We need it this year. You at least have to drop an album this year I don't think you can afford to take any more time but yeah congratulations to Cardi B and everybody else who had a part in making and creating this record so before I officially end this episode I have to talk about T.I. and Tiny I know I've talked about this topic when it um when news first broke about them but today I read an article that they have been accused by six new people specifically one girl says she was underage I believe the article said she was 17 and she was working as an intern for TI, and one night alleges that she was raped on a tour bus. Another uh, is a member of the military who says she met the couple in a club, was allegedly drugged by the couple, and woke up sore, pretty much, you know, assuming that she had been raped and assaulted. I think that I'm going to say something that's no different than what everybody else is saying, what we always say when stories like this come out about, you know, celebrities or any public figure. Where there's smoke, there's fire. And when three, when six, when 20 people are coming out accusing someone of the same things and they're unrelated to each other, they don't even know each other, there's got to be something there. And like I said, I have heard stories about T.I. and Tiny, not about rape, but just about how they like to recruit women into their, you know, sex life. Um, I can't say I'm super surprised, especially because, like I said, T.I. has a history of just not respecting women, not respecting his own wife. So I can't say I'm super surprised. I was hoping that this wouldn't be true only because they both have kids together and they also have kids apart from each other. So kids are involved in the situation. They have to go through this. They have to go to school. Well, we're in a pandemic, but you know what I mean. You know, kids are mean. They have to read about this online. Other kids from their schools are probably talking about it with each other. They now have to face the possibility because I I don't think it'll be long, especially with these six new um, people coming out speaking against them. I don't think it'll be long before charges are officially brought against them. And so then there's that possibility that they make 
go to jail, T.I. especially because he is a felon. So I really am praying for their kids. If these accusations are true, you can only just hope that justice does what it needs to do and that these accusers, these survivors, um, they get the justice that they deserve. And I will keep it at that. But before the show ends, I wanted to talk about the song of the week. And the song of the week is Love Reggae by JoJo, which features Sinashe. It is on the deluxe version of JoJo's Good to Know album. An incredible album. The deluxe is just as incredible. And this song came on in the car on shuffle. And I was like, man, this song is so good. But I feel like it's not known if you're not a JoJo or even a Tanache fan because it is a deep cut. But it is a good song and... I remember hoping that JoJo would release it as a single because it was so good. And to me, it was single worthy, but it never did come out. But if you haven't heard it, definitely check it out because it's such a great song. Tanache has the standout verse on the song to me. And they both fed off of each other's energies really well. And the beat is just so good. It makes you want to dance. It's just a feel-good record. There's still an opportunity for Jodo, Jojo, not Jodo, wow, for Jojo to put this song out for the summer because I think it would go crazy. But if you haven't heard Love Reggae yet or Jojo's Good to Know album, definitely check it out because it is well worth the listen. come towards the end of this episode thank you guys so much for sticking with me for over an hour and listening to me rant and ramble if you want to keep up with this podcast further then head to my website www.listentomespeak.com and you can find a link to all of my social medias you can keep up with anything happening with this podcast i'm on twitter facebook and instagram and if you want to support this podcast further then definitely donate to my listeners donation I definitely would appreciate it. You can find it on my anchor page or on my website, which again is www.listentomespeak.com. And like I say every week, be kind to yourselves and thank you for listening to me speak. Music.